Well, welcome to Grace This Weekend. Uh, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, one of the teaching pastors, and I would love to meet you if we haven't met yet. So thanks for being here. If you're in the room with us, if you're watching live stream, welcome, and I'm glad we all be together today. And I don't know about you guys, but I have absolutely loved this series, uh, Assume I Know Nothing. And uh, for me, I came to know Jesus as a young adult in college, and so I really had no church background at all. And as I was starting to explore my faith and begin my faith journey, uh, my questions were, were just like this. I was kind of like, talk to me as if I know absolutely nothing about the Bible and nothing about Jesus. Can you give me the big picture? And so that's what we've been doing. We've been kind of taking this whole series and starting from scratch and assuming that we know absolutely nothing at all. We said, if you kind of came out from nowhere and had never heard about Christianity and we started from the very, very beginning, how do we talk about our faith in Jesus. And so we've been doing that over the last bunch of weeks. And actually, in light of that conversation, we've been saying, what if we took this whole semester to really get our minds and our hearts around the Bible and around Jesus? And would that actually just catalyze our faith in a huge way? And so that's what we've been doing. We said, if we took the semester kind of from January through May and really dived into it, we said that investment would probably pay off for the rest of our lives, probably really move us in our faith journey. And so many of you have been doing that. And if you're just jumping in for maybe the first time or first handful of times, love to have you jump in uh, into that journey through the rest of the semester even now. So what we're going to do today is we're going to wrap up kind of the first part of this semester. We're ending this series called Assume I Know Nothing today. And then what we're going to do is kick off uh, this series we've been talking about a little bit, Five Assumptions About God and Why They're Wrong. Uh, Pastor Jeff's going to be leading us through that series. He wrote a book by the same title. And so we're all going to go through that book and that series together. And our small groups are going to be having those conversations as well. So if you really want to get a lot out of that conversation and that leg of the journey, make sure to sign up for a small group. You will be thrilled that you did. And it really will catalyze our faith. Let me kind of walk us back through where we've come from a little bit in the journey so far with Assume I Know Nothing. What we said is uh, there's kind of a myth out there that goes something like this. Uh, it, it, we would often say that people of faith, typically we would think of it this way, are only people that are attached to a religious system. That's usually what we think of. There are kind of people of faith and there's everybody else or there's me. And that's a myth. We said kind of week one, everyone is a person of faith. We are all operating out of the faith that we have. Sometimes that faith is very, very clear. We would attach it to a religious system. We'd say, yeah, I believe in Christianity or I'm a Muslim or I'm a Buddhist or I'm a whatever. And sometimes that's a little more nebulous. We don't quite know what we believe, but we're kind of living out whatever beliefs we actually have. We said, for the, the follower of Jesus has made a conscious choice to say, yes, I believe in God. I believe that the Bible is God's word, and I've chosen to put my faith in that. Right? So I believe the Bible. I'm going to follow God and follow what he has to say. And so we took some time to look at that, and we really looked at the beginning of all things, with the, the creation and where humanity came from. We took some time to look at how God made Adam and Eve and his, really his original design for humanity. And his heart for humanity has always been the same. He's always loved people and he created us to love us and to know us and to live life with us and to be with us. Kind of like, uh, like parents have children, right? Because they want to share their lives with them and enjoy them. And we said that's kind of God's heart for making humanity, Adam and Eve. And we looked at that story 
And we also looked at the kind of the fatal flaw that Adam and Eve would enter into right away in the very beginning of creation. They would have made this one decision to disobey God. That's what the Bible would call sin. And that sin would change everything. Right? It would kind of fracture creation, we could say. And I was thinking back uh, to my teenage years before following Jesus thinking about this whole concept of sin. And I don't know how this worked for you, but uh, during our lunch period, I used to hang out with friends. We had kind of a whole hour to have lunch and we would tell stories and catch up and just do whatever during that lunch hour. And uh, we had this new guy enter our lunch table, kind of made his way over. We're getting to know him. And uh, this guy was a neat guy and he had some different hobbies than I had. He, he had a um, kind of a thing for drag racing, his cars. He had like a neon that he souped up and, you know, like dropped down real low. I know, it was great. And I was like, this is fascinating. So you like race other cars. He lived in kind of this, this city area, kind of an urban area where he would race on the city blocks, you know, and race other people. I was like, really? You do that? It's like fast and furious. This is amazing. How does this work? And he would tell us the story and we're all like a little bit enthralled by the whole thing. And then he'd go, you know, and sometimes we get chased by the police. And I was like, you do? What, do you, what happens when you get chased by the police? He says, well, here's what I do. Real, you know, totally played it cool. When I get chased by the police, here's what I do. What I'll do is I'll be, I'll be speeding along and I'll take a sharp turn down one of the side streets into a city block. And then I'll go down about three or four houses and then I'll take a, a sharp turn into a driveway, go all the way deep into that driveway, I'll kill the car, shut off the lights, and duck down like this, and the cop will go flying by, I'll never see me. I'm like, yeah, right? That, there's no way that would work. He's like, totally. I run from the cops, and then I hide, works every time. I'm like, this is fascinating. Well, this guy's not going to jail, so maybe it's working, you know? I, I just have this in the back of my head. Mostly we make fun of him, but we listen to his stories. So one night, it's the middle of summer, uh, I had my license for about nine months. I was running a little bit late, you know, hanging out with some friends, and um, I was past curfew, and I thought, I got to get home fast, you know? Like, I need to make sure I get home before my parents find out. So I think I was out in, uh, I was out in Norton area, and I started speeding, you know, speeding home very quickly, and right about the time I kind of topped out the speed I was planning to go, it's a really great plan. I was speeding, and all of a sudden, we right? The lights start flashing, and I'm like, I'm dead, right? This is just what happens. I, I'm in trouble. The cop has found me. I am in trouble. I'm speeding. I'm totally guilty. But then all of a sudden, I remembered. I remember this really brilliant plan that my friend had flawlessly executed, you know, over and over again. And so I, I make this really awesome life choice to run from the cops, is what happens. And, uh, but I'm, I'm not in, a, in an urban area. I'm in the country, right? So I'm in Norton. And so I take a right down another country road, and then I just drive down somebody's 250-foot driveway, you know? And, and pretty much the police officer just, like, follows me right to it. It's awesome. I go through the whole motions, too. I turn the car off, hit the lights, right, do the thing. And uh, he, he walks, I still can't believe I did this. He walks up to my car, and man, he is so mad. And I was like, my life is over, right? I'm like, I'm dead. It's pretty much what's going to happen. He walks up to the window, asks me to roll down uh, my window, 
and he starts just kind of lighting me up, you know, and he, he even started, he's, son, and he said it. He said, son. I was like, police officers say that. They call me son. He said, son, you were evading, eluding a police officer of the law. You were breaking the speed limit, disorderly conduct, right? And he writes me up this ticket, you know, and I'm like, just take me to jail. My life is over, right? Like, I don't care what you do to me. So he calls my parents, writes me a ticket, right? One of you is a police officer. You're like, I thought you looked familiar. <laughs> you know, he, he writes it all up and I am guilty as charged. And I was like, whatever needs to happen to me, I just surrender myself to the mercy of you, police officer, right? And, and that's completely an accurate story. That actually all happened. Isn't that embarrassing? That, that though, that's exactly what we've been talking about with sin, this is how it is. I'm guilty as charged. I tried to get away with it. I tried to run and hide. I got nothing. This is the idea. We've been saying humanity is created. God made us to love us. He showed us the best way to live. He creates Adam and Eve and you and I. And what happens is we engage sin, and sin is a huge deal. We've been talking about this over the last bunch of weeks. Here's a great verse uh, from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, great book of the Bible, where uh, the Apostle Paul, a leader in the early church, really tries to explain what it means to have faith in Jesus. Let's look at what happens in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. If you have a Bible, you can open up, follow along with us. We'll be in Romans 5 quite a bit today. If you don't, we have the, the verses are on the screen. You can just follow along. Romans 5, 12 Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. This verse is absolutely loaded uh, with information. What Paul is saying is this. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. Through the, the one man is Adam, essentially. Adam and Eve have sinned. Humanity is created. Sin enters the world. And what we've been saying is sin is a huge deal. It's a big deal. It, it's the breaking of God's laws. And it's such a big deal because of this, because God is a just God. When, when sin happens, God can't, he actually can't just look the other way and say, it's no big deal. Wink and nod. You get a warning. He actually has to account for that because he, he's a just God. He's just, he's perfectly just. And so he has to deliver justice because that's who he is. What we've been saying is, as we looked at the Bible, sin, when someone sins, what happens is what we earn from that sin is death or condemnation. We're separated from God because of that. Okay, we're separated. I'll put condemnation here. Condemnation is kind of the, the natural outcome of what happens when I sin. My, I'm separated from God in this life. My, I'm relationally separated from God. And then if that continues on, when I die and I still have not had anyone intervene and take care of that sin in some way, then that condemnation means that I'm separated from God eternally and that's what hell is all about. Okay, so here's what we've been saying. Humanity sinned, sin has spread to all people, and all people are facing condemnation if something doesn't happen. The way sin spreads to people is actually through the Father. 
Adam and Eve would have children, and those children would be born with, sorry dads, right? The sin nature would pass from, from dad to kids, and those kids would be sinful, and then they would have sinful kids, and their kids would have sinful kids, and their kids, right? That's why our kids do bad things, because they are sinful. That's just how it is, right? So sin has passed to all people, and now all people, if something didn't change, would be facing condemnation. Now what we did is we looked basically through the whole Old Testament over the, the past handful of weeks. And what in summary we have said is this, the story of the Old Testament is essentially this, God choosing to reach out to humanity over and over and over again and it not quite being enough, okay? So God's attempting to restore a relationship to humanity. Even though we've all sinned, we've all broken God's laws, God is chasing humanity. And we talked about how God would pick a person and a nation and build a nation out of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel would happen. And we, we talked in depth about that and how God would pick a people and he would choose to bless the world through this one nation. And how God would give that nation a law, think Ten Commandments, and how that law would teach people how they should live, what life is supposed to be like. If everybody operated perfectly and never sinned, this is what life would look like. And what that law would do is help people understand we have a real problem here. We can't even do the basics. We need help, more help than I can come up with on my own. The law is given. And then God would send people, leaders, that would point people back to God over and over. Prophets that would speak to God. Kings that would lead the people, hopefully, towards God. Judges. And what would even happen is there would be a sacrificial system that would be put in place. And this is kind of how this would work. The people of Israel, when they committed sins, they would be guilty and they, they know that they have to take care of that somehow. And so God made this system where he would say, I want you to bring an animal, think lamb or ram, some kind of animal that's without defect, it's perfect. And I want you to lay your hands on that animal and what happens is symbolically our sin is transferred to that animal and then that animal is sacrificed because it takes a life to pay for a life, right? It takes a life to purchase a life. And sin is such a big deal, the only way to pay for it is with a life or with blood. And we looked at that. And if you missed any of those conversations, we went real fast there, you should totally catch up online. You'll be thrilled that you did and you'll have a bunch of those blanks filled in if you do. Now, if you read through the whole Old Testament, here's what would happen. Here's what you would feel, right? If you read through it in a handful of months, here's kind of the emotional process you'd go through. You would feel God reaching out, choosing Israel, wasn't enough. Throwing out the law, wasn't enough. Throwing out prophets, wasn't enough. Giving the kings, wasn't enough. And all the while, as God is reaching out and making attempts to restore relationship with humanity, it would work for a little while, but it wasn't enough. And what you feel is this unbelievable momentum growing and expectation growing. And by the end of the Old Testament, it is at fever pitch, this need for a hope in a person called the Messiah. The Messiah. This is what Pastor Jeff talked to us about last week. And Messiah means anointed one. And here's this promise that would be a thread all throughout the Old Testament that someone is coming and the someone who is coming will save us. He will be enough. 
he will be the one that will rescue us and change us and restore our relationship with God. So if you read through the Old Testament, that's what you would feel. Man, everybody's looking for the Messiah. They're leaning into this expectation, waiting and hoping and knowing, I can't do it on my own. And even these little pieces that God has given us, they're not quite enough. We need someone to save us. It's our only hope. The end of the Old Testament, there's actually about a 400-year gap between the end of the writing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the writing of the New Testament. That expectation continues to grow in that gap. And by the time that Jesus is going to show up on the scene, right, hint, hint, he's the Messiah, kind of left with a cliffhanger last week. Jeff told us that it does not start It starts with a J, and it's not Jeff, right? So Jeff is not the Messiah. If you're wondering, you now know. Okay, so it is going to be Jesus. The answer is the same answer that will get you a blow pop in Sunday school, Jesus, right? So just say that. So when you show up on the New Testament scene in the book of Matthew, that's going to be the first book of the New Testament. If you're looking at your Bible, uh, the New Testament is going to be about a third or a fourth of the Bible. depends on how your Bible's arranged. The Old Testament is going to be about two-thirds to three-quarters So the New Testament's the second part of the Bible, the second big part. And now Jesus shows up, and Jesus is going to be this Messiah. Here's going to be the first, uh, kind of the first verse of the New Testament. Here's what it's going to say. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Okay, we all were kind of waiting for that and expecting it. Jesus is going to show up on the scene And what's going to happen in the New Testament is if you wanted to understand more about the life, the death, the burial, the the ministry of Jesus, the resurrection, all that stuff, you would look at the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's what these are. These are essentially biographies about kind of unique takes on the life of Jesus. Right, so it's four different guys that are going to write unique biographies about the life of Jesus and kind of approach his life from a different view. Jesus shows up. They're like, this is the guy that we've been looking for. He is the Messiah. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was uh, growing up, when I would have heard Jesus Christ, I would have heard Jesus Christ uh, in that name, just like Christ was the last name of Jesus. That's how I would have thought of it. And I would have thought of Jesus as a historical figure. So in my mind, uh, right, not growing up in the church, never hearing the Bible taught, I would have thought Gandhi, Napoleon, Abraham Lincoln, Jesus Christ, right? Kind of all the same categories. Stuff you learn in history, that guy's related, connected to some kind of religion. That literally would have been my view of it. Here's what's fascinating. The, the name Christ, the word Christ, means Messiah. So if you were, if you were a Hebrew-speaking person, you would say the word Messiah, If you were a Greek-speaking person, which is many of the people in the era when Jesus lived, you would use the word Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah. It means the same thing. They both, both those words, Messiah and Christ, both mean anointed one. Talking about the, the same concept. And because Jesus has proven himself to be the Christ, it's kind of become like his last name, even though it's not, right? Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. That's all showing up here. And here's what we're going to see as we kind of dive into it today. We're looking to really answer the question, who is this Messiah and what did he come to do? That's all we really have time and space to look at. Who is the Messiah? What did he come to do? So let's take a look here at Jesus as he shows up on the scene. 
And what we're going to do is get kind of a 30,000 foot view of his life and his ministry. Okay, what he did. Here's what Jesus did. Let's kind of start at the, the top. So Jesus would be born from a virgin woman named Mary. She's basically a teenager. And she would become pregnant by God himself, by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus did not have an earthly father, right? No earthly father contributed to him being born. God himself impregnated Mary. That's a big deal. The fact that she was a virgin and that Jesus was born from a virgin. Here's why. Jesus would not be like the rest of us in that he was not born with a sin nature. He wasn't born with a propensity to have to sin. That's what kind of a sin nature is, man. If I have a sin nature, I'm going to use it. I'm always going to lean into breaking God's laws. That's why we don't have to teach our kids to do the wrong thing. They automatically know to do that. We have to teach them to do the right thing. Jesus was born with a divine nature. He is the Son of God. He is God himself. So Jesus is born, born from a virgin. He's the Son of God. Well, what does his early childhood be like? We don't really know that much about it. We know that he probably would have been largely a normal kid. He kind of shows up on the scene in a quiet way, the Christmas story. He would have been raised in Israel as a pretty normal kid. We see just a glimpse of who he is at age 12. And what we would know is that his spiritual understanding would be very advanced for a 12-year-old. We find him uh, questioning, having a conversation, a dialogue with religious leaders of the day, and then being kind of blown away that this this kid is asking these questions. Fast forward from 12 to 30, right? So we kind of skip over this 18-year period. What is Jesus doing there? We don't know exactly. Probably being a carpenter, like his stepfather Joseph, who would have raised him. He would have worked with wood and stone. I like that because I like to work with wood too. I think that's fantastic. He would have, uh, he would have lived a pretty normal life, you know, up until 30, would have been obedient to his parents, and uh, would have been a kind of a normal-ish Jewish kid. John the Baptist, his cousin, this guy, shows up out of nowhere, and he has this ministry. And he's starting to really influence Israel in all these major ways. And he starts teaching large crowds of people and baptizing people. That's where he got his name. And he starts looking at the people and saying, hey, if you're wondering if I'm the Messiah, I want you to understand that I'm not. I'm not the guy. Jesus is the guy. Okay, Jesus is the guy. Jesus is going to be the one you want to follow. And he starts throwing energy towards Jesus. Jesus then begins his ministry. He has about a three-year ministry. And here's kind of what he would do during that time. Jesus would grab about 12 guys and they would uh, surround him and they would serve together. They would be his disciples. Jesus would have been seen as a rabbi or a teacher. And here's what he, he would do and they would kind of do together. Jesus would, throughout Israel, he never left uh, the size of geography that's basically the size of New Jersey, right? So he never left this little piece of land. He would go around and he would heal people that need healed, people who were deaf and blind, people that were lepers, people that were um, kind of ostracized from society, and he would look at them and he would heal them. He would exercise demons, people that were oppressed by demonic forces, and he would interact with them and change them and help them. He would even still storms, right? So there'd be a storm happening, and Jesus would speak a word and it would stop. Jesus would walk on water. 
He would raise the dead. He would do miraculous things. He would teach people, and people started to hear him, and they, they would say, this guy teaches differently. He teaches with authority. Right? He's not like the rest of the teachers of the law. He's different. And what would happen is there would have been a religious establishment with religious leaders, and very quickly what would happen is all the people that used to follow these religious leaders would begin to follow Jesus. And the religious leaders now are getting frustrated and they're jealous and they're angry and they want to make Jesus go away, right? And so Jesus begins to have this huge following. He would uh, multiply bread and fish and feed thousands of people. And all along the way, as all this stuff is happening, people are starting to ask the question, could this be the guy? Could this be the guy? They wondered, would the Messiah show up in a loud, flashy way or would he show up in a quiet way? And as they began to watch Jesus, they would say, could this one be the one? Is this going to be the Messiah that will save us? Jesus would live a perfect life. He would do something very unique to humanity. He would do he would live perfectly. He would never sin. Here's what I put up here on the screen. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. You probably want to jot that reference down. Check it out later. Here's what we said. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Catch that? He's been tempted in every way, just as we are. He lived the entire human experience. He's been lonely, cold, tired, bored, hungry. He's been hangry, probably, right? But he didn't sin. Jesus himself uniquely is perfect. He's fulfilled the law of God perfectly. No other human being has ever done that, and here's why this is such a big deal. Every human being, because we have sinned, we have to pay for our life by ourselves, right? It costs a life to pay for a life. And when a, a person sins, I got to pay my way, right? So I'll, I'm going to die and pay for that sin. Jesus uniquely did not sin. He's perfect. So he's the only one who has the ability to pay for the life of someone else. Okay, he's the only one that has the ability to pay for the life of someone else. Jesus is perfect in every way. I want to jump back here to a statement that I put in your notes. If we looked in total at the life ministry of Jesus, here's what we'd find out. Jesus is the only one that has uniquely and completely fulfilled the job description of the Messiah. Jesus is the only one that has uniquely and completely fulfilled the job description of the Messiah. He's the guy. If we took the time to look through all 350 prophecies and took the life of Jesus and tried to match them all up, perfect fit. He's the only guy who could ever do that. He's perfect, and he is the Messiah. Now, what Jesus would do is in his perfection, in his obedience, he would fulfill, the Bible says, fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus had a very specific mission, the Messiah did. We learned about this last week, that the Messiah was going to suffer and sacrifice himself in some unique ways, and that's what Jesus would do. Here's how it worked. Jesus, as he was leading out this ministry, and right, he started to have the attention of the religious leaders, and they were getting frustrated. They wanted to kill him. There was a political and a religious machinery that was happening, and what Jesus would do is he would kind of allow himself to be caught in the middle of it. 
Okay, and so the religious leaders begin to scheme and plot on how they could arrest him, how, how they could uh, falsely accuse him, and how they could kill him. And he allows himself to be put into that situation. That's exactly what happens. Jesus would be arrested. He would be falsely accused. He would be beaten. Uh, he'd be flogged. That's a word we don't use very much. What that means is he would be beaten within an inch of his life. So he would be basically a bloody mess by the end of it. We talked about this last week out of Isaiah 53, how the Messiah was to be uh, beaten to the point where right, his, his human form was marred and he was almost unrecognizable as a human. And that would be Jesus. He would be uh, literally annihilated physically. And then eventually he would allow himself to be crucified. What that means is he'd have spikes be put through uh, probably his wrists and his ankles and he would be attached to pieces of wood that would be formed in a cross. That is crucifixion and typically victims of crucifixion would hang there until they suffocated and they would die. Jesus would do all of that and in doing all of that he would fulfill all righteousness at the end of his life, if we looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would see in some of those accounts that at the end of his life, right before he died, he would say something. It's very interesting if we don't understand the context. He would say, it is finished. It is finished. Jesus knew that he was fulfilling a very specific task that God the Father had sent him to do. And here's what that task looks like. I put it here in your notes Back to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, this time, it says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. See, this is huge because if I know nothing, and I'm just looking at the person of Jesus, and I'm saying, well, all kinds of guys die. All kinds of people have been tortured there's probably thousands of people that have been crucified. What is so unique about what Jesus did? Phenomenal question, fair question. What's unique about what Jesus did is he was fulfilling a very specific task. Jesus, remember, never sinned. The only human being ever, right? He's all God, he's all man. The only human being ever to be perfect. The only one who never deserved to die, never deserved any punishment, never deserved to be condemned or separated from God. And in light of that, Jesus makes this conscious choice to not remain here, but instead move over into the seat of humanity. And what Jesus would do is he would take on the sin of humanity and the condemnation of humanity. He would stand in humanity's place and he would bear the punishment that was necessary to pay the penalty for the sin of all human beings. Remember we talked about that lamb, the lamb that would be transferred, the sin would be moved onto that animal, the animal would be slaughtered. Here's the picture. Jesus is God's lamb, and what he, God is doing is taking the sin of the world, and he's placing it onto Jesus. And now Jesus is to be sacrificed and now that payment, at least potentially, can be made for every human being to pay for that sin that they, you and I have committed. Okay? Jesus moves into the seat of humanity and can offer payment for our sin, and he even faces condemnation. The, the Bible would say that the Father turned his face from Jesus. 
he would bear the wrath of God instead of us bearing that wrath. This is huge. This is huge. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is what theologians call, it's a big word, substitutionary atonement. Here's what it means. Jesus is my substitute. He stands in my place and he makes atonement for my sin. That's the idea. Now, when Jesus did that, here's how this works. If someone were to say, hey, I want to put my faith in Jesus, I want this to become true in my life, there's an unbelievable and a dy- dynamic transaction that takes place when that happens. right? Because Jesus died in the place of humanity, but that, that sacrifice doesn't become active in someone's life until that person puts their faith in Jesus. When they put their faith in Jesus, when they're born again, and they become a Christ follower, and they get saved, it all means the same thing. Here's what happens. The perfection of Jesus is transferred to that person's account. And their sin and the penalty of their sin is wiped away. No longer do they have to pay the penalty for their sin. Jesus did that. Does that mean that someone who has sinned will never sin again? No. Right? It means that our relationship to sin is changed. Now I don't have to sin in the same ways that I have been sinning. The, the, the power of it's been broken. And now when God looks at me, he looks at me through the lens of perfect Jesus, not broken and sinful Ryan. When that transaction takes place, the righteousness that Jesus has accomplished is transferred to me and now I am at peace with God, I'm right with God and the condemnation that I should have endured is erased. When God looks at the sinful person who's put their faith in Jesus, God only sees what Jesus has done, his perfection, his righteousness. My sin and my condemnation have been paid for when I've done that. Right? Jesus takes on my sin and condemnation, I take on his perfection and righteousness. It's a great exchange. You say, why would anyone ever do that? It's a phenomenal question. It's the love of God. You guys remember my, uh, my story about running from the cops. I got a ticket right from that officer. He called my parents just like he should have. I want you to imagine for a minute that that police officer showed up and asked me to roll down the window and he said, Ryan, just the same things he said to me. You're guilty, right? Evading arrest, running from the cops, speeding, all the things listed out that I was guilty of, busted, guilty as charged. And he wrote the ticket and he called my parents just like he should have. Let's pretend for a minute that he didn't stop there, but he, he looked at me and said, you know what? He took out his wallet and he said, I'm going to pay the ticket for you. I'm going to pay your fine. And then he didn't stop there. He looked at me again and said, you know what? I want to invite you. I'm going to invite you over to, to meet my family. I want you to come over tonight. He called his wife on his way back home as he invited me over to dinner and he had her make a dinner for me. And on the way, he called his lawyer and had his lawyer meet me at his house. As I show up and have dinner with his family, his lawyer 
writes my name in as a co-owner to all of his possessions, and he basically makes me a part of his family. You're like, no one would do that. That's crazy. That's exactly how it works with Jesus. I don't get what I do deserve, sin, condemnation, and I get the reward that Jesus accomplished. I'm brought into the family of God. I enjoy the reward that he won. His perfection, his righteousness is now transferred to my account. Makes no sense at all. That is the love of God. It is supernatural. It's unlike anything else we've ever encountered. And it's fascinating. I was, uh, I was down in Atlanta a few weeks ago helping our new campus down there get started and uh, on my plane ride back, I had one of those tickets where, I, never, I don't think I ever had one like this, where they say, you know, you're going to get your seat number when you go up to the gate. I was like, ooh, mystery seat. This is going to be fun. Like, where am I going to land? And so they assigned me my seat, and I made my way over to my seat. And uh, I, I, I was seated next to this, uh, an Indian man who I became friends with. And we had an hour and a half long, kind of amazing conversation about work and life and a lot of time spent talking about faith. And uh, as we dialogued about our faith, we came to the end of the plane ride and, and he's kind of summarizing his thoughts about faith and about religions, religious systems and religion in general. And he said something and I felt compelled to kind of move into this part that he, he said. He said, Ryan, you know, all religions are pretty much the same. You know, there's, there's always a God and that God says he's the only way. And that God's got a book. And that book outlines a certain way we're supposed to live. And if you live that certain way, you go to heaven. And if you don't live that certain way, you go to hell. And that's pretty much what every religion says. And I looked at my brother, my friend here, and I said, Brother, I, I just want to make sure you understand how completely different and completely unique Christianity is. What Jesus is saying, what we're talking about here. It's totally different than what you just described. Because what you just described is, you know, if I sin, if I'm, if I'm kind of evil and greedy and selfish, but then I do some good stuff, I go to church a little bit and I do some good, and it outweighs the bad, and at the end of my life I, I do some good and I do some bad, and it, hopefully I'm in the black with God by the time it all wraps up. But there's an anxiety and a, an insecurity in my relationship with God all the way to the end, and I'm always kind of trying to work my way to heaven. That's what you just described to me. What I said was, Jesus is offering something completely different before you and I do anything good at all. When we're still enemies with Jesus, right? When, when he's still writing the ticket, so to say, he looks and he gives me complete and total righteousness, complete and total peace with God. It's all given on the front end before I've done anything that could ever be considered good or anything that would consider me earning it on my own. It's not that at the end I may get in. It's I'm guaranteed it at the beginning, not because of anything that I've done, but because the perfection of what Jesus accomplished. So it has nothing to do with being a good person. Being a good person has zero to do with, with what Jesus is talking about. 
When someone looks at you and says, are you going to heaven? Answering with, yeah, I'm a pretty good person, has zero to do with this equation. Here's how this works. I want you to see this last verse. Romans 5.1. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does being justified mean? Here's what it, here's what it means. Imagine a courtroom. God is the judge, and he's looking at a case of an individual human being guilty of sin in all of these ways, right? Guilty, complete and total guilt. Jesus is watching. Jesus says, I will intercept that guilt. I will pay and offer my not guilty verdict for him or her, and I will place that on top of his or her guilty verdict, and now God looks at that and says, approved. That's what justification means, being justified. I am now approved in the eyes of God. Therefore, since we have been, that is past tense, we have been approved or justified, how? Through faith in Jesus. It's If I know Jesus, I am right with God. I'm as right with God as I'm ever going to be. Why? Because Jesus, what he has accomplished has been transferred to me. That's how this works. Jesus offers forgiveness for all I've done, and he offers me the reward for all he's done. You're a thinking person. You may say, if I I was telling someone about this and they wanted this to happen in their life, how would I describe the process of saying, yeah, I want this this to become activated in my life. I want this transfer to happen, this exchange to happen. I might walk you through something like these five steps if I was telling a friend how to do this. I'd say, here's the first one. Uh, We've got to take responsibility for our sin. Right? Take responsibility for our sin. I've got to own the fact that I'm guilty. I deserve the ticket. I was running from the cops. Busted. I call my parents. No excuse. Number two, recognize that sin has separated us from God. That that sin is such a huge deal because it's broken the very relationship with God that I'm designed to have. That I can't work my way out of it. I can't be a good person to fix it. There's no religious activity I could do that would undo the sin. The only way it was going to be paid for is with a life. That's the next one. Believe that Jesus is God that he lived perfectly, that he died innocently, and he did that to pay for my sin. He's the only one qualified to do this, right? Uniquely and completely fulfilled that job description of Messiah, and he lived and died for me. I have to own that personally and believe that myself. Here's number four. Ask Jesus to forgive me personally. Right? Not only did I sin, not only is that sin separate me from God, but Jesus, will you forgive me for my anger, for my lust, for my disobedience, for my adultery, whatever it is. Right? We're all sinful people. I talked to a friend last night. He said the same thing. He said, Ryan, I have no problem admitting that I have a wicked heart. I own that. I ask Jesus to forgive that. And here's the last one. Commit to follow Jesus, letting him define and direct your life. See, what this is, this can happen in a moment in time where 
the righteousness of God is transferred to my account, but that's the beginning of a relationship. Just like I can marry my wife at the altar on my wedding day, and that can happen in a moment, but our marriage will happen for the rest of my life. I I choose to follow Jesus, to be born again, to be saved in a moment, and I'm starting a relationship with Christ that will last eternally. When I commit to follow Jesus, I'm asking him to be God. I'm saying I want to trust you with the direction of my life, the definition of my life. I want to follow you. I got to think, man, if that police officer would have done for me what I just described to you, do you think I would trust him? Wow. Why would he do that? What's his motivation? He's given me everything. And this is what God has done. He has gone to the greatest lengths to give us all that he has. Why? Out of love and passion for our souls. We set out here in the beginning of our time to answer this question, who is the Messiah and what did he come to do? Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the Savior of the whole world. And he has come to pay for the sins of the world to pay for each and every individual who would say, yes, I want you to do that for me, Jesus. Remember, I'm looking at the police officer, police officer is handing me the cash, inviting me to his house. I have to make a decision to accept that or not. Right? It's where my will is involved. Because that's it. This is the story of, of Christianity, the story of Jesus. What we've been saying is we're not going to twist your arm. Nobody's going to beg you to follow Jesus today. Here it is, and it's, um, it is profound love on display. And it's for you if you want it. And for those of you who've maybe said yes to Jesus, you can look at that with me and say, oh, isn't it mind-blowing? It's hard to talk about because it's so amazing. Thank you, God. I know there's a bunch of us that are like me. When I was in college, I was trying to figure out what life's all about. If you're at a place where you want to say, hey, I think I want this to happen, you simply walk through those five steps I just laid out. It's that simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. And if you want to let us know about that, we'd love to pray for you, help you. If you have more questions, let us know. You can do that on the connection card, grab us after service, whatever. This is what Jesus did. This is the work of the Messiah. And that work is available to you and to me and to every human being that is alive today and able to make a decision. So I want to have the band come out. I'm going to pray for us. Would you consider this, what Jesus has done? Maybe for you personally. Father, I want to say thank you. I thank you for a love that I'll never fully understand. A love that's really only for my benefit, Lord, and for your enjoyment. Because you've chosen uh, to accept me, your enemy. A person who has defied you and rebelled against you and kicked against your ways.
Lord, you've chosen to make me your child, forgiving all that I've done and giving me an inheritance that I could never even fathom, certainly never earn. Thank you, God. For each one of us hearing this, Lord, would you cause us, if we have accepted this message, Lord, if we've accepted you, Jesus, to be blown away all over again, that the hope of the Messiah comes crashing into our broken lives. And God, for each and every one who can hear my voice right now, who's praying with me, maybe considering following you, Lord, I pray that you'd give great courage. Courage really to receive love. Uh, It's beyond anything we've ever known. Lord, thank you for loving the unlovable, redeeming the unsavable, doing the impossible. We stand in awe of you today.